Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Since the beginning of time, humans have continued to wrestle with the question of the nature of reality. We can go all the way back to Plato's allegory of the cave to see that humans have wrestled with wondering what is shadow and what is reality? What is real? What is true and lasting? What should we focus on? Is there some greater reality that has been hidden from us? And I think humans have all wrestled with this question because it's been hardwired into us by our Creator. Part of being made in the image of God is that we all ask the question, is there something better than this? Is there some story that's better? Even on good days, the angst of life, we ask, God, surely there has to be something better than this. It's a longing for a true and better story. It's been explored in various ways by humans down through history and art and architecture, through stories, through books, and now movies. One of the more recent examples, or at least from the last 100 years, I think is the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And like the wardrobe that opened the way into Narnia, the gospel opens the way for us into a new life, a whole new way of being, a reality that we didn't know existed before we opened the door of faith and we stepped into it. But of course, unlike Narnia, we know the events of the gospel, the the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, it is not a metaphor, it's not a fable, it is credible history. It's been documented for us in the book that is the most credible document in ancient history. In fact, even people outside of the Christian faith have affirmed that the Bible is reliable. We have so many different versions of the manuscripts of the Bible. It's really true. History, historians have documented this from the early days that the Bible tells us a story of a real man, Jesus of Nazareth, and events that unfolded, and many people who witnessed them and were a part of them. And so this morning we're continuing in our series in the book of Romans. Now some of you maybe are just diving in or guests with us. I'm going to give you a quick summary of where we've come so far in this book. It's a letter. It was written by an early church leader to the church, primarily to explain to them the good news of the gospel, what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us the bad news, which is that we're all sinners. We've all joined in human rebellion. None of us are the people that we are supposed to be or living the life that God created for us. And because of this, we need this good news. And so God has made a way through faith, by his grace, that we can be saved. And here in Romans chapter 6, he goes on to explain the way that we should now live in response to this justification, the fact that we are now in good relationship with God. Now, Paul's teaching of salvation as a gift was radical in his day. And in fact, it is still today. It's hard 
to believe. And this teaching raised many questions for people, and Paul tried to anticipate these questions. So here in Romans, he anticipates this primary question, which is that if everything depends on what God has done, then what does it matter how we live our lives? It seems like a good question, right? I mean, it's all up to God, so God has done everything for me, so now I can just live however I want, and then at the end of my life, I get out of hell out of free card, and I move on to whatever's next. So what does it matter how we live today? And Paul says it matters very much. And in fact, what God has done in Christ is not just something that accomplishes something for our past. It's not just a hope for a better future, but it's something that matters to us today. No matter what our circumstances are, it matters. His response shows us how the doctrines of what we call justification and sanctification work together. They're not separate doctrines. It's a package deal of our life in Christ. So I'll give you just a quick kind of chart here that summarizes the process of salvation. So the beginning point is justification. That is, whenever you place faith in Jesus Christ at your conversion, you are justified before God. And how does that change your relationship to sin? Well, it saves you from the penalty of sin. On the other end of the spectrum, the bottom point is glorification. That's the end of the process. That is that one day we will be fully like Jesus. The work will be done. And then our relationship is that we'll be saved from the presence of sin. There won't be any more sin. We won't have to deal with it anymore. And I think at Easter, many people are aware of these two pieces. What Christ has done for me and what he promises he will do for me. But I wonder if sometimes we don't neglect to focus on the fact that what Christ did and the events of Easter provides power today to do the work of what we call sanctification. And that is that we are being saved from the power of sin in real life and in real time. I think we're very aware of what he's done, aware of what he'll do, But do we think about the resurrection power, the fact that Easter provides the fuel for the ongoing work of God in our lives? So Easter is the story of our daily lives. It's the story of death and resurrection. And it's not just the fact that Christ has died and has been raised from the dead, but the fact that now also we who are in Christ are putting to death sin and are being made alive in Christ. It's a total transformation. It's a process that is all a work of God's grace, and yet we're also commanded in Scripture to actively engage in the process, to submit ourselves, to surrender to this work of grace. So our sanctification is not a passive matter at all. It's the process of becoming who we are in Christ. And sometimes people have characterized this experience, this process, through a phrase, and that is union with Christ. Union with with Christ. And I think that's Paul's main idea here in Romans chapter 6. So we're actually going to start in the middle of the passage and work our way out to the edges. So in the middle of this section, Paul says, verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. You can make a case that union with Christ is the central truth of the entire doctrine of salvation. It's an expression that doesn't occur in the Bible. The Bible doesn't use the phrase union with Christ, but the Bible also doesn't use the word trinity, even though it's a very helpful term to help us understand what's going on there. Union with Christ refers to the believer's relationship with Christ by the Holy Spirit and through faith, 
through which believers may experience the saving benefits of Christ's work. So Paul explains it primarily in two movements, dying to sin and being made alive in Jesus. Those are the two main processes at work. We share in his death, we share in his resurrection. He says it over and over again in this passage, the idea of death and life. One of the primary images the Bible uses to talk about how we live into this relationship is the simple metaphor of walking. Walking. It's a very simple idea. Just pay attention as you read the Bible how often walking comes up. We're described as people who walk with God. Our life of faith and spiritual transformation is compared to simply walking. Or we could even say more broadly, the process of moving forward very slowly in the right direction. Eugene Peterson has called this a long obedience in the same direction. He wrote a book with that title. It's it's a great expression because I think it really characterizes what it means to walk with God. It's a long obedience moving in the same direction. There's days when you feel like you're taking more steps backward than forward. It's a messy process, but it is simply walking with God. That is what it means to have union with Christ. And a quick application for you, I'm not going to write a book about it. It's not a genius idea. I didn't come up with it. It's just a simple application. Maybe one way that you could be reminded of your union with Christ is literally to walk with him. I I found in my own life that walking or running or whatever pace you may choose is a, a wonderful time using your body and just being alone with him, of connecting with God in prayer. And so maybe you've done this, or maybe it's been a while, or you've never tried it. But I've just found that as walking is a great metaphor for our life with God, it's also just a very easy application to walk with him and spend time in relationship. So a big part of this process is knowing our identity. In verses 3, 6, and 9, he says we need to know know who we are, know what Christ has done. Our identity is basically the way that we define ourselves. It's the things that you offer as an answer to the prompt. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Don't you love that question? It's often the very first interview question. It's really not a question. It's a prompt. Tell us a little more about yourself. I'm going to give you a little hint here. One time I was doing an interview, and someone went 42 minutes. I clocked it. 42 minutes just off the prompt, tell us a little about yourself. That's a little more than we were hoping for. (laughs) But these are the things that you tell people. It's your identity. Tell us about yourself. Well, we give points of our identity. You have an identity as a son or daughter. You may have an identity as as a husband or a wife. You may be a brother or a sister. You may have a professional identity or a vocational identity. You may have an identity as a student or a graduate of a particular college or university. Our interests, our hobbies, our passions, our talents, they're all part of how we define ourselves. But we must never forget that the most important identity that we have as God's people is that we are in union with Christ. And that means we have died to sin and we are being made alive in Christ. That's the most important thing about you. That is the umbrella over which everything else in your life falls under your identity in Christ, and yet I think we often treat the life of faith as a kind of add-on package, a sort of extra subscription service, the thing that benefits our life, but it's just this small piece. But that's not the way it was designed to be. 
when we walk through the door of faith and we open the wardrobe and we move into Narnia, we experience a whole new reality that we had no idea existed before. That is what it means to be in union with Christ. It's an entirely new identity. Now, let me tell you, the other day, um, I went in for, uh, to get looked at by a doctor and found out, came out of there on Thursday, finding out that I'm going to have surgery on Monday. It was an all-of-a-sudden thing, uh, a sport injury. And uh, so by the time I left, uh, not only had I found that out, but I'd also met with like three other people, including intake for pre-op, because surprise, it's happening Monday. And so at this pre-op meeting, they're asking you all these different questions about your health and, you know, all these invasive questions. And then they asked this interesting question. They said, would you like to identify a religious preference? And the way it was asked, I understand the intention behind it, but it just sort of struck me funny. So in the moment, I quipped back and I said, well, tell me what my options are. <laughs> and, and I didn't mean it in some kind of pluralistic, like, which religion am I going to pick? I mean, that could have been fun, but... I started thinking about it. What is your religious preference? It just struck me weird, like, like it's ice cream flavor, you know, and I just get to pick, like, which one do you like the most? And, I was, and, and so, of course, I said, well, I, is Christian an option? They're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. And so they kept moving on, but in my mind, I'm coming up with all these things. I'm thinking, can I say, like, sinner saved by grace or, you know, dead to sin, alive in Christ? Uh, can I have the long essay version of the response to that? You know, it's like, tell us a little about yourself. Tell us about your religion. Oh, let me tell you. I'd love to tell you. It'll take a while. But somehow that question just struck me funny, and I thought about this idea of identity and how it just doesn't capture it to say, well, that's my religious preference. No, it's who I am. It's my very identity. It's a whole, my life is completely changed because I'm in union with Jesus Christ, and it makes all the difference in the world. You need to know your identity in Christ. You need to know it. You need to know it. We need to remember that we're people bought with the Christ's blood, my life is not my own. I'm redeemed by Christ. My life belongs to him. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I have the spirit of God living inside of me, enabling me to resist sin and to live in true freedom and joy. I now serve the one who gave himself for me to redeem me from all wickedness and purify me as a person who is eager to do good. That's what it means. And much, much more to be in union with Christ. It's my very identity. It unfolds in two movements that happen every day of our life. The first one is that we die to sin. This is where Paul begins. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In light of his emphasis upon grace in the previous chapters, he asks this question, and his answer is an emphatic no. A literal translation here would be, may it never be so. In other words, that's a ridiculous question. Of course we wouldn't. Why would we continue to sin? Well, if I sin more, then I get more grace. Well, trust me, you don't need help sinning. You're going to get plenty of that. You're going to get plenty of grace, right? We don't do that because it's not a license to sin because the whole point is that we would be set free from sin to live the life that God has created for us. So verse 2 says, we are those who have died to sin. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we'll no longer have a desire to sin. We will. Or that we won't be tempted by sin. We will. It doesn't mean we're incapable of sinning. We are. 
And it doesn't mean that we won't sin. We will. So then what does it mean that we are people who have died to sin? It means that you are no longer under the reign and the ruling authority of sin. You're no longer in bondage to sin. You have a new authority in your life. You have a new power in your life. And you can say no to sin. And you can say yes to the new authority and control of your life, the Spirit of God. Without Christ, you are dead in sin. In Christ, you are dead to sin. We're still going to struggle, but we can say, you know what, sin? You're dead to me. I don't serve you anymore. So in verse 12, he emphatically commands, do not let sin reign. In other words, declare war on it. Don't give it place in your life. Don't entertain thoughts that will lead to sinful action. Avoid tempting environments. Run when you see it coming. Invite others to help you fight the battle and hold you accountable. We have real power to overcome sin in our lives. That is the resurrection power of God. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. That's power. Now is putting sin to death in your life and raising you to new life, enabling you to live in a way that you never thought imaginable. But sometimes we treat sin like a friend that comes knocking on our door. And that we would want to open the door to, you know, hey, man, it'd be really great to hang out, but, you know, I'm over here, I got to hang out with Jesus, so sorry I can't hang out with you. As if, you know, we're missing out on something. And that's because we're like Adam and Eve. We think God is holding out on us. He is not holding out on us. He's trying to protect us because sin is not your friend. Sin is your enemy. So sin is not like a friend knocking on the door to hang out and have a good time. Sin is like an intruder that comes in the middle of the night to try to steal from you or to cause harm in your life. Don't buy the lie that sin is your friend. It's not. We treat it that way. But sin is there to corrupt our lives and destroy our lives. But it's tricky. It's tricky. We must know and remember that we have died to the power of sin, that we're no longer slaves, that we're joyful servants, and a new power is ruling us. So that's a lot about sin for Easter, don't you think? Let's move on now to the flip side of this transaction, which is that we die to our sin, the old self, in order that we can walk in a new way. So in verse 11, Paul writes, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. This phrase, count yourself, he's building on the idea of knowing. He said, know who you are, know what God's done for you. And then count yourself is the idea of considering. It's an active knowing in the moment. Bring back to mind and now live as a person who has died to sin and who is being made new In Christ, Paul is emphasizing the fact that although there are things that are true of us, we may not be utilizing or taking advantage of those, right? There's so many things about the fullness of Christ that we just, that we miss. Don't take advantage of the benefit and the power available to us. It would be like owning a a family home in Colorado. Beautiful home, but you've never gone there. You've seen pictures. It seems like a really nice place to go. Other family members have been there and enjoyed the benefits and told you the stories of how great it is to get away to our family home in Colorado, but you never go. If you don't go, it's a benefit that's available to you, but you're not accessing it. And so it is true in our spiritual lives as well. There's so much more there that we can dive into. Though we've been set free, we can still live as slaves. 
even though we've been set free from the power of sin. So Paul then takes it a step further. His progression here is from knowing to considering to finally, in verse 13, offering. Offer yourselves to God. Because we need to remember that we're not just set free from something, sin. We are set free for something or to something, a newness of life. And again, I think it's one of those areas we focus on what we're set free from, but not what we're set free for. Hebrews 9.14, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? See, sin causes us to turn inward and to focus on ourselves and telling our own story. But in Christ, in union with him, we're telling a better story. We're telling his story lived out through our life in a unique way. It enables us to serve God in his greater purposes. So Paul's logic here is if you want to avoid being used as an instrument of wickedness, instead you need to give all of yourself as an instrument of righteousness. In other words, here's a practical strategy. You want to avoid sin in your life. Sometimes it's best to not focus on sin, right? Stop sinning, stop sinning, don't do this thing, i got to stop doing this thing. Well, there's a reason that you have passion and energy around that. It's been distorted, but you've got to take that. You don't just neutralize it. You need to turn it in a different direction. So if you want to avoid sin and living like the old person, you need to be focused on becoming the new person. Right? We have energy. We need to direct it somewhere. And we're called to live every part of our life as a sacrifice of worship, Paul will say later in the letter. So finally, in verse 14, it's all based on this promise. He says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. This is the promise. In union with Christ, we are a people whose lives are marked by grace. We've been set free. The curse of sin has been broken. The curse of the law has been broken. We're now under grace. And here's my summary of this section, putting it in a positive way. Grace compels us to know and become who we are in Christ through offering every part of our lives in holy service to God. That's what Easter's about. It's not just about what Christ has done. It's not just about what he will do and promises. Those are wonderful things, but it's also about right now God saving you and changing you and making you more like Christ. And we are compelled to live into this new life. Easter is the fuel, it's the power of a new story and a new way. It's like opening the door of a wardrobe and walking through and experiencing a whole new way of life. That's what it is. That's what it is about. Let us not think so small about what Christ has done for us. Let us believe that today the resurrection matters provides power. It provides a new way for you to become a new you. Will you pray with me together? Father, we thank you for the reminder of Easter. What we know is true all year round, but we celebrate it. The foundation, the cornerstone of our lives. This amazing moment in history when you, gap, when you bridge the infinite gap between people we're broken in a holy God. 
God, you brought us together in relationship with you, and you've done it through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray this morning for every man and woman, every young person, every boy and girl, every person that's watching online, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will reveal the power of the resurrection to them and what that means for them personally and the work that you are doing in their life. And we'll see that Easter matters today, right now. God, we long for the hope of one day, but today will you help us to surrender all of who we are, to walk through by faith and experience this whole new way of life. We give you ourselves. God, it's for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.